let's uh, focus on um, the text before us today. And uh, let's be attentive to God as he speaks to us from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we've been looking um, at what it means to be a disciple, and um, it's a, a beautiful picture of what it means to be human, to live in rest and freedom, and yet um, so much of our lives don't feel restful. Um, we don't feel faithful. We lack the character that we see described here, and I know that can be discouraging, or maybe for some of us it it feels like this doesn't have anything to do with what they're going through right now. And so we ask you to uh, speak to us and to, um, to help us to see how these words um, that you have spoken in the scriptures by your spirit meets us right where we are. And I pray you would give us grace, that you would renew us in this good news, and that you would um, just set us off in a life of freedom and joy that we would faithfully bear witness to who you are in the world and that you would be glorified through that, that your name would be seen as great by our neighbors and our friends and our family. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we've been in this, uh, this series on discipleship, and um, I've been talking about how disciples are like apprentices, that is someone who follows someone and listens attentively to their teaching and imitates their way of life and then begins to participate in what that master is doing. And that's essentially um, the picture that Jesus has been giving us in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we've been kind of looking and reflecting at um, the character of Jesus and how we're uh, to develop that character as we follow him. Um, a, a few weeks ago before that, we talked about how we have to to be a disciple, we have to come to Jesus and to be with Jesus continually. That is to trust in him and to walk with him and to pray. Um, and today we're going to be looking at um, this other aspect of discipleship, which is joining Jesus in the works he is doing. So that's the focus of our passage tonight, joining Jesus in the works that he is doing. Um, in this sermon, Jesus has been announcing his kingdom. He's been um, gathering people to himself who have trusted in him and received the grace of God and, um, and now are learning to live in this new way, this new kingdom that he's bringing. And, um, and so one of the questions that comes up is, how does this community then relate to the world around us? And that's what Jesus speaks to in this passage. And there's not really uh, an obvious answer to this question if we just sort of sat around thinking about it. Um, 
And the reason for that, as we've been seeing, is that Jesus's kingdom is upside down and backwards, right, from the way that the kingdoms of the world work. And so um, we can't just take the way that normal kingdoms operate and just think, okay, now following Jesus, we're going to continue in that same way as we, we relate to other kingdoms. It's going to look very differently. And so we have to be attentive to what Jesus is saying tonight about who we are and how that needs to shape the way we relate to the world around us and our neighbors. And this is a really important question to be thinking about right now. Um, you know, culturally, things are chaotic and polarized, and the church um, in America in particular, and probably in many other places, is wrestling deeply with how do we relate to our non-Christian neighbors and to political power and all sorts of things like that. And so um, we're going to look at these two brilliant metaphors that Jesus gives us. Uh, where he shows us that there's this, this flexible and adaptive model for how we relate so that we can be faithful to God in his kingdom and, and bring glory to God. And so that's, that's what we're going to explore. I've used this uh, metaphor a lot, and some of you have heard me use this, um, but I, I, I heard this from a guy named Andy Crouch years ago who was a campus minister at Harvard for a long time with InterVarsity, and he's done a lot of other great things. And some of you have read his books on technology and, and what it means to be human. He's wonderful. I strongly encourage you to read his stuff. But he has this metaphor that he used in one of his earlier books about how the church is supposed to relate to the world. And he talks about how the church can, can make various gestures, right? Think of, think of this as a gesture, and this is a gesture, and this is a gesture, and you know the, all these sorts of ways that we position ourselves and orient ourselves to the world around us. And he says, the Bible gives the church, a lot of different gestures that we're supposed to embody, depending on what's going on in the world around us. We, we have to be ready to rightly respond to the, the environment. Sometimes we have to confront it. Sometimes we have to um, go arm in arm with what's going on and recognize our commonality. Sometimes we have to sort of um, take what's being done and um, put it in new light, right? There's all sorts of different gestures that the church makes toward the world, but he says the church often gets in danger of taking a gesture and making it a permanent posture, right? And so uh, maybe uh, for a lot of us, it's, it's this posture, you know, and that's, the per that's always the way we relate to the world is defense or ready to attack. And he says that's a problem because that's one gesture, but it's not the only way the church relates to the world. We have to be able to constantly adapt because we're rooted in the kingdom of God. So keep that in mind as we go through this passage today, because I think it's going to illuminate a lot of what Jesus is saying. Um, but we're going to look at what it means to be faithful witnesses. And I want to start by talking about the life and light of the world. And then we'll talk about the metaphors Jesus gives of salt and light. And then we're going to talk about decay and darkness. So that's where we're going. And you can follow along with me. Let's start by looking at the life and light of the world. The the passage that we're looking at and Jesus's words on how the church, how his kingdom people relate to the world around them is set within the backdrop of the biblical story, obviously. And you need to kind of have that in mind as you think about these metaphors that Jesus gives of salt and light. And so I want to go all the way back to the beginning and remind you that the Bible begins in a garden in this, in this place called Eden, where God created humanity to live and to experience fullness of life in the presence of God, in the light of God's presence, and to live there with joy and, and harmony. This is what we were made for. And yet, um, immediately in this story, we read about this rebellion where Adam and Eve are cast out of the presence of God. That um, They're no longer in the realm of life, eating from the tree of life. They're cast out of this garden because they've 
rebelled against their creator, and they move out into the realm of darkness and into the realm of death. And the whole Bible story sort of takes place in that realm of darkness and death, right? We see even within the first few chapters of Genesis, we see the rise of shame and envy and fear and anger and people starting to get violent with one another. And all of that produces death. And we just hear of people dying generation after generation. Mankind lives in a dark wilderness. That's the picture that the Bible gives. It's sort of like, um, remember the, the Lion King where um, they're, they're looking over the realm of the kingdom and Simba is looking out and then there's the dark place where the light doesn't touch, you know? That's basically where we live, in the dark place that the light doesn't touch. That's the world. And so this story of redemption um, takes place in the context of this darkness and death. And so all throughout the, the story of redemption, God is... Um, communicated to us as, as a light. God's presence is represented by a light. We see it in the burning bush. We see it in the pillar of fire. We see it in the candle that's in the tabernacle that represents the presence of God and dwelling on and, and shining on the people of God, right? All throughout the Old Testament, life and light represents God. And, and um, redemption is about getting back into that place of God's presence in his light and being able to eat of the tree of life. We see God's presence as a place where water flows out from the temple. Um, we, we see a staff where um, it's budding with, with life. There is healing, right? All of that is what, what God's presence is um, represented to us as. And Israel was set apart as a community uh, called to be a light in the world, they were supposed to shine to the nations and invite people to know God so they could experience life again, returning back to that paradise in Eden. And yet Israel also sinned and rebelled. And so they were cursed by God. Death reigned over them. They, all the curses of the covenant came upon them to the point that they were ultimately exiled out of the promised land. And so Isaiah, which remember Isaiah serves as a big backdrop for Matthew. Isaiah describes the world as a place of darkness. And Israel, the center of the world, is also in darkness. And it speaks of a time when God would come and lead Israel out of exile back into the promised land. The light of God would lead Israel back out of exile. So light was the beginning of creation, and it moved to darkness. Life was at the beginning of creation, and it moved to death. Now, that's not the story that we, um, that we hear from the culture around us and that we're uh, often living into. It's not the story that we tell ourselves. The sort of secular story that dominates our culture um, goes the opposite direction. It talks about the past as a time of ignorance and oppression and how um, we've now moved and through the Enlightenment to a time in which life and freedom can blossom right? It used to be a time of disease and hunger and war and death, and the, the world was a brutal place, and now we live in a place of health and provision and peace and life. That's the story that um, exists in our culture. And we should ask ourselves, you know, which one of these is true? Which one of these stories actually represents the world in which we're living? Have we really become more free and more alive and more peaceful? I don't think we have, and I think most people sense that that's not true, right? It, we, we may have less starvation. Uh, there may be more resources out there. We have better medicine. That's, I think that's true. Nobody's going to deny that. 
But are people really healthier? Um, have we really moved the needle on that? How, how's it going with death? Still happening, 100%, minus one, right? Um, are people living a fuller life, right? No, depression, war, dehumanization, death, it's still rampant. Um, and I think we know this. I think this, people are feeling this, right? Because if you just look at the movies and the stories that are being told right now, you know, some of the most popular genres are the, the sort of post-apocalyptic stories and the dystopian stories. I mean, I love those. They're really interesting, but they're really famous and common right now. Um, I can list off like a dozen of them uh, just off the top of my head, like, um, you know, Hunger Games, right? Uh, that's that's post-apocalyptic. Um, we've got The Stand, Children of Men, The Road, Handmaiden's Tale, The Strain. You can go on and on. They're, they're, like, we love to imagine now the world doesn't get better. It gets worse. Um, and I think that's because we feel the instability of the world right now. So now what I'm getting at here is that um, no matter what we tell ourselves, we sense that the world is still dark. It's still decaying. Evil and death are still reigning. And so Jesus, when he comes onto the scene, but remember back in chapter four, um, and he begins to preach the gospel, Matthew says this is to fulfill what Isaiah said about how the people are walking in darkness and they have seen a great light. Jesus is the light of God who has come into the world to bring the world out of exile. Jesus is the life, the, the, the actual life that gave life to everything else. The life of the world has come into the world and gone into death so that death would be overthrown. Jesus is the one who would make a real community of light and life. And, and that's what he's talking about when he says in the Sermon on the Mount what he says here. So let me read again verses 13 and 14 and just remind you of these metaphors he begins to play with. Salt and light. You are the salt of the earth, he says. You are the light of the world. Salt and light. What is this about? Jesus is announcing his kingdom. He's, he's already pronounced the blessings of his kingdom that's very different than the kingdoms of this world. He, he says, if you're poor in spirit, you're blessed. Um, if you are meek, you are blessed. If you are a peacemaker, you are blessed. This is not who the world typically says is blessed. But he says, if you have come to me in faith and you are beginning to, to embody these virtues and take on my character, then, um, then you are blessed. And, and you are then salt and light to the world. So he's declaring this of you. And he says, you're salt and light. What does he mean by that? Well, think about what salt does and what it's always done, and even in the ancient world, salt was to flavor things and to preserve things, right? We use salt this way now. We, we put salt on things to draw out the flavors, right? It brings out the sweetness. It reduces the bitterness, right? All, unsalted food can be pretty bland. You put some salt on it, and it, it, it can, it's amazing the, the goodness that it can bring out, right? But salt can also preserve things that would normally decay. So we don't do this a lot. Sometimes we do still. But in the ancient world, salt would be rubbed all over various meats so that they would be prolonged and preserved so they could be eaten much later on and so that people could live. It was for life. It was a preservative. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever smelled really rotten meat, but it's terrible. Um, when I was in college, I had a buddy who um, lived in my suite you guys know Joe, Joe McGowan. Many of you know Joe. Um, and he, he played this prank on our friend Charles uh, un unintentionally. He meant to get somebody else. He got my friend Charles. And so Charles is not a guy you want to mess with. So when Joe went out of town, Charles snuck into Joe's room, 
and took off the ceiling tile of the dorm and put a Cornish Gainham uh, up in the tiles and put the tile back in place. And so when Joe came back at the end of the weekend, it reeked in there. I mean, it was decaying, de decaying meat and it smelled terrible and it just, you know, it was awful. And Joe could hardly go in there without, you know, gagging and spent hours trying to find where it was. It was hilarious. And yet, you know, stinking meat is gross and you won't live if you eat it, right? Um, and so salt would prevent that sort of thing from happening. Um, so that's what Jesus is saying. It's like, you are, um, you are salt and light. You bring out the flavor, the goodness of the world. You preserve and bring life. And you're also light. And what does light do? Light reveals what is hidden in the dark, right? Um, darkness has moral overtones to it in the Bible. Uh, like I mentioned a second ago, Matthew says the world, you know, people are walking in darkness. This is saying people are walking in immorality. They're walking in ways that bring death and destruction. Um, and, and darkness hides that. It allows people to do things in secret, right? Um, and yet the light, when it shines, it reveals what is hidden. It exposes what's there, and it can give guidance as we're trying to navigate all the obstacles that are hidden in life, and therefore it brings hope. And so you guys know I really don't like to camp. Um, and I remember camping as a young man or boy. I don't actually remember what time this was, but I distinctly remember being camping somewhere one time. And there was no moon, and uh, you couldn't see the stars. And we were far away from everything, and somehow I was off from where we were, where we were um, camping for something, and then I was trying to get back, and I, I didn't have a light with me. And I just remember how dark it was and how painful it was trying to get through all the bushes and getting scratched up and find my way back. It was a painful thing, right? I needed a light. And now, of course, we all have our cell phones and you always have a flashlight with you, but I didn't at that time. Um, and, and I just needed some hope, you know, that I could get back to where I needed to be. That's how light functions. You know, when it, when it reveals and exposes and gives guidance, there's hope that I'm not trapped in this dark, dangerous place. So both of these images of salt and light tell us something important about the world. Now, both of them indicate that the world is a place of decay and darkness, like I've already been saying, right? Death and evil are reigning, but both images also say something positive about the world, that there is something good to be drawn out of the world, that there is actually hope in the world. And that's because Matthew knows and Jesus knows that God made the world good. And everything has gotten messed up, but the, the goodness of God's world cannot be destroyed. And so our job, just like what Jesus came into the world to do, our job is to, in some way, preserve, to, to draw out the good flavor of God's world, to shine light on the world, and to give people hope as we expose what is evil. That's what Jesus is saying of us. Preserve, slow the decay, draw out the flavor, expose, offer guidance, give hope. Now, what he is not saying about us when he says, you know, that we're to be salt and light is that we're to be really showy in our piety. Now, this is an important thing to recognize because a lot of times when we think about being salt and light, you know, we think that I need to really be a kind of talking a lot about all the pious things I'm doing, right? So people know, you know, what, what I'm supposed to be doing, what they should be doing. And we have to remember Jesus really criticizes that sort of living. Right. It, it, when he says we're to be salt and light, he's not saying make sure people know how much you pray or how often you go to church. Right. Those are good things. Those are practices that Christians need to be engaged in, undoubtedly. But that is not the good works, the, the stuff that Jesus is highlighting here. He is saying that that we should um, 
actually live with the character of Jesus and do the things that are conforming to his kingdom, live according to his kingdom ethics in ways that don't naturally fit into the kingdoms of the world, right? Um, we don't want to just be showy about our piety so that people get the impression we think we're better than them or to get the applause of other religious people. That is absolutely not what Jesus means here. So what does he mean? He's saying, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We're to live before other people, around them, in front of them, yes, but it's the good works that result in people giving God glory. It's not my works of piety that, that result in people giving glory to God. So how do we do that? How do we live as salt and light? Well, it's these two things that are critical. We are to live as distinct people. We're to live differently, but we're to live differently in the world. So we're to be different and also present. Different and also present. Both of those things are critical. And so as we live differently in the world with others, we do the things that Jesus does and we do it with godliness and character. And that is what people will see and then give glory to God. And Jesus has already been telling us what this looks like. He just gave the Beatitudes about that. Blessed are these people. It's the people with this sort of character, those who are humble, those who are repentant, those who are gentle and merciful and live with integrity and, and bring about peace and persevere through hard things and even opposition. And then he's going to go on to tell us the sorts of ethics that drive us. He's going to talk us uh, to us about being people who reconcile rather than gossip about others or just retaliate or cut people off. Um, talking about being people who are sexually pure and faithful in our relationships and love even our enemies. And so it's those things that Jesus say are going to result in people giving glory to our Father in heaven. Presence and difference. Salt preserves, draws out the best amidst um, all, there, salt is different than the food that it's penetrating, right? We're to be different and yet present. Light exposes, it goes into the darkness, it penetrates, it offers hope and guidance. So lastly, I want to talk about decay and darkness. And, and the reason for this is that Jesus issues a warning with both of these images. He says that both with salt and light, they can lose their essential quality and then they're, they're really worthless, right? Salt can lose its saltiness. He says, if you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, right? The, the street was often the place where you just threw out your waste. It's not good for anything. You know, if, if salt loses its saltiness, it's just waste. Light, he says, that's hidden is worthless. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He says, if a light is covered, if it is hidden in some way, it's not effective. It's useless. And so Jesus is warning that, that we can lose our essential witness in the way that we live. And we see these failures in the church and in each of us individually all the time, right? Um, there are a lot of wrong church models or Christian models in terms of how we relate to the world around us. And they're all rooted in failing to imitate Jesus's own way of being in the world, right? Jesus came into the world. He lived among sinners, right? Even though he was pure, he was present in this dark place, in this evil place, and yet he lived distinctly in godliness and character. He was different than those around him. 
And each of us individually and often the church as a whole, we fail to follow Jesus in this way. We lose our saltiness, we get diluted, and we end up conforming to the world. We lose our difference. Or we begin to cover our light by being absent from the world, um, not penetrating it, not going out into the world, but huddling together um, in our own little enclaves and staying safe. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does it look like to, to do what Jesus is talking about here as individuals and as a church collectively? And so um, let's first think about what it looks like individually. Um, one of the ways that we compromise our witness is by lacking difference. And like I said a second ago, we, we fail to embody the character of Jesus. And so I just, again, go back to the Beatitudes. Uh, Ray Ortland, who's, who's a pastor in Tennessee, he has what he calls the unbeatitudes. And I just thought, oh, these are helpful ways of just thinking about, you know, what Jesus has been preaching on uh, to us recently. And so he, he talks about the unbeatitudes, um, those who are entitled, carefree and comfortable, pushy, Greedy, vengeful, shrewdly villainous, agitators, people focused on being popular. He says all, all of those are like, they're like the anti-beatitudes. And, you know, all of us can easily begin to look like those things. The, the entitled, how often do we live life as if we're owed sorts of, uh, all sorts of things from others and um, just living without gratitude um, carefree and comfortable, how much of our lives are aimed at keeping our lives safe and just away from all the problems? How often are we pushy and trying to get our own way? I mean, I could go on and on. This is us losing our saltiness. So we don't embody the character of Jesus, but we can also um, start conforming to the world around us, right? We, we start living according to the same values and the same moral codes as everyone around us. And so we begin to be punitive, and unreconciling in our relationships. We, we can use people sexually, uh, be unfaithful in our relationships and commitments. We can say whatever we need in order to get ahead. Our word can't be trusted. Um, we live vengefully. We hate our enemies because they deserve it. Um, we live with greed. We live with showy piety, right? All of these are ways that we start conforming to the world and lacking difference. But we can also lack presence, right? We can live in such a way that we avoid non-Christians and non-Christian spaces because we see that that's not godly and we want to make sure we're being formed rightly or we want to be safe from their influence. And so we seek to live a sheltered life or a comfortable life and secure. And we never go out into places that will test us and it will force us to, um, to be confronted with the way other people live and maybe reveal something about, about us. But I'll tell you the worst thing that we do. And it's really when, when we do both of these things the wrong way. It's when we're present and um, we lack difference and yet we claim superiority. That's the worst combination. We're present in the world. We're just like the world, but we act like we're better than the world. That's the Pharisees. And that's who Jesus often was most critical of because he says, there's nothing about what you're doing that's salt and light. Now, friends, I have good news real quick. Um, and that's that if you hear yourself in any of that, there's grace for you. <laughs> I mean, Jesus forgives people like us who don't witness as we should. That's exactly why he came to die, because none of us are perfect witnesses. And so if you're the worst hypocrite, there's grace for that. There's transformation. There's power to change. 
Light exposes, salt preserves by being distinct. And so we need to think about that as we engage our neighbors around us. But let's think about the church for a second, um, because this is a big question I know that you're probably wrestling with. And as you look at Christians around you and you're watching what's going on in the, in the church, um, this is a major question. How is the church supposed to respond to the culture around us? And so some Christians are saying we shouldn't be present. We should just withdraw. We should be separate. We should be focused on purity. And that leads them at times to reject even good things in the world and end up denying the creational goodness of God's world. And others, um, they, they're present in the world, but they don't have any difference. Uh, and so they end up adopting all the values and the political agendas and the ideological agendas of the world. And so there's, they're about accommodation and appeasement, and they're just uncritically adopting everything that the world around them is doing. And then there's a third one, which is um, living without difference and, uh, and being present by trying to take over. And this is a pretty common one. This is what I call domination. A very common way that the church now is thinking about its relationship to the world is to not live any differently than the world because we're trying to adopt the power and wield the power of the world, which is corrupt, in order to take it over and to let our difference um, sort of be coercively imposed on everyone. And that doesn't fit with what Jesus is talking about either, right? If you put too much salt on food, it dominates it to the point of destroying it. If you shine light so brightly, it blinds everybody and nobody can see anything and they're in darkness in a different way. We are not called to dominate the culture around us. We're called to preserve and draw out the best in it and expose the evil and offer guidance and hope, but not to dominate. The question we got to ask ourselves is, why do we go wrong in, in um, these images Jesus gives us? Why do we fail as salt and light? And I think at the root of it is fear. In all of these errors, the root of our failure to live present in the world and yet distinct, embodying Jesus' character, doing the works of Jesus, is that we are afraid. What are we afraid of? We're afraid of all sorts of things. We're afraid of, of things not being how they were. We're afraid of humiliation. We're afraid of loss. We're afraid of a lack of power. We're afraid of things that might happen to our children. We're afraid of death. And it's understandable that we're afraid. Those are all legitimate concerns. And I understand that, yeah, we're going to be afraid, but we are not called to live by that fear. It's the whole reason Jesus came into the world, to, to bring life and light even to us and to fill us, right? Jesus left the light and life of God's presence, and he came down into the darkness, and he went all the way down into death so that we would live in the presence of his light. And because that is true, we do not have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of what the world can do, us, do to us. We don't have to be afraid of what other people might think of us. We can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world, as we just sang a moment ago. Through the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus has overcome the world. And so Jesus has preserved us. He's drawn out and is drawing out what is good about the way he has made us. He is exposing our evil and darkness. He's giving us guidance and hope of eternal life. So following Jesus as a disciple, as an apprentice, means developing the character of Jesus as we participate in the works of Jesus. And that means that we have to learn to live without being dominated by fear. 
It doesn't mean we have to deny the decay or the, the death or the darkness, but we live as salt and life, trusting that Jesus has overcome. And, and those that begin to embody this new kingdom, Jesus says, are blessed. Because they're returning to the vocation that God created us for, what he called Israel to be, and what he calls his church to be. You know, Zion, the city where God dwelt with his people, Jerusalem, it was supposed to be a light to the world. And when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. He was talking about Jerusalem, but really in one sense, he was talking about us. We're to be on this hill above um, the eyesight of everyone where people can see us and we are reflecting what God has done in us to the world and it gives hope to people, just like Jerusalem was supposed to do. When people see the change in our lives, the way that life is being worked into us, the way that the decay is being put to death, they have hope and they can begin to glorify God as they cling to that life that's offered in Jesus. So as we think about having a faithful witness, I want to leave you with these three things. Having a faithful witness, first and foremost, is about being a particular type of person. I've already said this, but um, I, I need to say it again because it's easily lost. When we think about our witness, we often think about what I should start doing. But first, we need to think about who we are, about being. Piety, as I said earlier, is about developing character, praying, worshiping, reading your Bible. That is not the end, that is the means to becoming who God wants to make you. So don't display your piety. Let your piety shape you into being a beautiful person, right? It's sort of like don't post photos of you at the gym. Just work out and people will see you're in shape, right? I, I'm not criticizing if you post photos of you at the gym, but you can see how that can become distort, distorted, right? The, the working out is to make you healthy. And so when people see you're healthy, they go, wow, that's amazing. Same with the piety. Don't display the piety. Let the piety do its work so that you become a beautiful person. And people go, what do you have? You have life. I, I want that. And they want to know our Father. Secondly, we have to avoid a posture and embrace all the different gestures. Right? This is going back to what I said at the beginning. The church and individuals have to learn more than one way of orienting to the world around us. Some of us have been shaped so deeply in the idea that the world is evil and I've always got to combat the world and be against the world. We don't know how to recognize the good things in God's creation and affirm that when we see that in people who aren't Christians. We should be people who uh, embrace truth wherever it is found, goodness wherever it is found, beauty wherever it is found. And so sometimes that means um, walking with people who aren't Christians and saying, isn't this wonderful? Isn't this great? Isn't that true? We should encourage and praise people. We should challenge and confront people. Sometimes we should confound people so that they ask questions. Sometimes we should show a better way. Sometimes we need to correct and guide. Sometimes we just need to suffer. All of those are important gestures in the life of individuals and churches. And we need to go into our context, in our neighborhood, in our city, our workplace, into our relationships, our family, friends, colleagues, and think about how we can encourage what is good, how we can live with integrity and difference in a way that exposes evil and confronts evil. We do have to do that. But often, we need to think about how we can go and show a better way. And then lastly, and again, I've said this already, we have to watch out that we are not driven by fear. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
because the light and life of the world has come to fill us with his light and life. If you have that light and life in you, then you do not have to be overcome by fear. And you don't have to let that drive your posture towards others and towards the culture around you. Do not be afraid, Jesus said. Do not be afraid. My peace I leave with you, he says. So as we go to this table, we go um, knowing that part of our witness to the world around us is this feast that we take together. Um, it takes the goods of human culture and it makes a meal out of them. And God blesses and sanctifies it so that we actually can see and taste the promises of God. Christ's body is represented to us in this bread. We're reminded that he gave his life for us. He went all the way down into death, all the way down into darkness so that we could live. And the wine represents Christ's blood that was poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we eat this meal, we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And we're filled by his light and life. Let's pray together. Father, we know that um, we often fail to be salt and light. And so um, I pray that first and foremost, as we taste these promises, um, that we would um, know that we are forgiven. None of us is a perfect witness. All of us um, are not the disciples that we should be. And yet we eat knowing that we are not yet who we will be. And so we pray that as we feast together, um, you would encourage us by your spirit, that you would transform us so that we would begin to be um, life and light to those around us, that we would reflect the beauty of Jesus and that people would glorify you as a result. We want people to know the life that you offer. And we want to experience that life ourselves. So um, we pray that you would work in us by your word and spirit through this meal in the name of Christ. And this is his name we pray. Amen.